The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. When we were able to be a saliva, you could feel the earth shake. You could feel the movement in your feet. And it was said that as you could feel that, that that was the the pounding of the heart, the lifeblood going through and back. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Story gathering has two meanings. We gather together and we gather stories. In this case, stories from a Native perspective. In this episode, we're going to hear from an elder and former chair of the Nez Perce tribe, Silas Whitman. He was one of several Native thinkers and leaders who spoke at a Confluence Story Gathering at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. Silas is going to introduce himself, and he'll share some memories of life at Salilo Falls, the series of waterfalls in the Columbia River that were flooded by the Dalles Dam in 1957. It was a traumatic loss for tribes along the river that relied on the falls as one of the greatest fisheries in North America. It was also a spiritual and cultural stronghold. Here's Silas. My name is Silas Whitman. I'm a member of the Nez Perce tribe. I grew up on a particular reservation. The um, composition of my families are that um, we have Cayuse blood, we have Snake River blood from the Snake River Highlands, El Poway, Palutzpu, Palus. My maternal grandfather's uh, uncle, Tuhudulutot, was the one that wouldn't shut up and got thrown in a guardhouse by General Howard. <laughs> uh, on my father's side, he obtained the name Whitman because that he sought to counsel those who were involved in the um, issues out at the Whitman mission. He did not know that he was going to be awarded something. Spalding told him, I'm going to give you a gift for trying to save people. So he said, from here on out, you're going to be named Whitman. My name, my next person's name, which means that a person is, is looking and tied to the North Star. And that to be resolute and to not sway from those things, including your opinions and your learned things. And so that's why I'm here, I guess. I can speak my mind. <laughs> Tommy Thompson and my grandmother, they were um, relations. And so when we'd go to Salilo, oftentimes we would stay with uh, the chief. And they would talk and they would visit. They got to hear about his skills that was probably out of necessity, something that was ingrained in a Columbia River leader, a chief. He would go out onto the banks, look at the river, watch the fishermen, and he'd look. And he'd ask somebody something about how the fishing was, what they were doing, what they were catching. And he could take a look at the composition of the fish going through. And stand back, look at them. Wave them in. Let these fish go by. They have a long way to go. They're going back. 
Let them have a chance to go back. It, for the longest while, I never thought much about that. That was very profound in the, the information that came back. Because, in other words, he could read how the fish looked. It could be the same group of fish, but different t- spawning times, and he could tell by the condition of them how long they had to go, their life cycles, and he could look look at all the major runs and determine, send people back who would come down and want to know what was happening with the runs, what they were doing before they went back into the upper Columbia or the upper uh, Snickerver Basin just to make sure that people could get ready. And we just like, before we were conducted our activities this far up, <clears throat> there would have to be recognition at the first fish ceremony that would be put on by Salilo. That in itself was what started the activities with the other tribes in the upper Columbia, upper Snake. Those simple activities, to me, when watching, watching that kindly old man talk with my grandmother, you get a sense this man was somebody that had some sort of a pervading knowledge of the resources. And years later, Clifford Allen and I were talking, Clifford from here, we're talking about when we were able to be a Salila, you could feel the earth shake. You could feel the movement in your feet. And it was said that as you could feel that, that that was the, the pounding of the heart, the lifeblood going through and back. They said, whenever you lost that ability of hearing or seeing that, and that's one of the teachings that came out, what my grandmother told me, that Tommy, she and Tommy would talk. If you're unable to feel that, to smell that, to taste that out of your, out of your lifeblood, then you need to do a lot of work that would reinstill the abilities of getting that back. What was that? We lost that ability until now we're trying to recreate it. In recreating it, we're using tools, of course, that are not ours, but they're based upon those observations that we made. People would ask us, well, how do, how do the tribes know about all these things? How do they? I said, well, it's simple. Your baseline research most effectively runs upon replication. Fish runs run on replication. Over eons of time, all of our people participated. Pass that down in replication. You listen, you listen, you listen. You pursue your activities. You pursue your activities for the benefit of all those around it. That includes everybody. The animal world, our brothers and sisters there, our own people. Those things come about, again, because it's been instilled in us and we all become research guys in that instance, one way or another. I think that's, it's now become something that's very healthy among our people. We need to generate among the youth and among the students. One day somebody will write something 
coming, you know, from here. You know, we fought long and hard for the things we have, and to sustain them for what we have. Others haven't achieved the things that we have by pure, I guess, resoluteness, even since the days of our wars. But when the tribes lost the buffalo, a lot of tribes lost the salmon. We almost lost. Other tribes lost entire cultures. Our situation has always been here that has affected us. They think they can throw money at us and we'd go away. We've built upon things ourselves. And today, <laughs> it's strange, I had the same discussion with uh, several tribal members in Pendleton yesterday. As what we have here, we can at least remember and see, and we have the ability of restoring it now. That means that we still have sovereignty. And the exercise of sovereignty comes with the ability of educating ourselves, sustaining ourselves with the ideas and the heart that our young ones will be behind us as we establish ourselves. We see about us that the little ones, as they come up preschool, a bunch of them now, <laughs> they come up and we know that they're going to be there to backfill these efforts. So it would have to be a complete, utter genocide and ethnocide to do that anymore. That's why we're helping, if we can, to get a lot of those places where people have been misplaced, cultures lost, bloodlines lost, that we recreate as much as we can to give people a chance to hopefully regenerate that, because then this becomes a better country for doing so. Seeing Salilo, very sad. But there has to be something that comes out of it, as we've been taught in our Nemipu way. You always make the best out of a bad situation, turn a negative into a plus. Getting back those things that have been lost like that, to the numbers and levels, probably not. But we can substitute whatever it is that we can accept. The youth will tell us which way they want to go. That's why we need to give them the strength to do that. So I see in one sense, crazy sense, a hope. We look upon us now with all the big obstacles for the fish and for us, and we say, how can we make the best out of a bad thing? That's what's facing us today. You're listening to Nez Perce elder Silas Whitman talking about Salilo Falls. He was speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. In the second part of the evening, his stories turned to learning from the elders about life on the river in Nez Perce homelands. Again, here's Silas. My grandfather was still alive yet, and um, we stayed someplace. And anyway, there was, he wanted to know if I had any chewing tobacco and took me out, and he said, all right, get that, get a plug Put it in a bucket, put all your water in there, let it soak throughout the day. So if you pour that around the tent, I take the ropes there, double them up, pour it across the front, front of the entrance. Okay, is that, what's that for now? They keep the rattlesnakes out. And so, 
because of Yuma Pine and I, we had this idea, we're going to check and see if that really works. <laughs> so we grabbed a bull snake. The bull snakes are like our friends. That's our weapons, because they fight rattlers. That poor thing just curled up into a pretzel. And it died. So we knew, uh-oh, tobacco really does work. And Grandma told him, that's you too, your teeth are going to fall out. <laughs> and um, I know that Alan and I probably were the last ones to see the weezer in the payette before the fish were killed and not put back in there again. The real Salmon River is the Weezer River, Natoch Nima. The Weezer, of course, one of the forks heads up into where New Meadows is at. And so you had access to those fish all the way through there. Those fish fed several nations of people all times. There were fish in the high mountains. Then it came to my two when we were talking about that one time, we said, how, how, where did these fish go? We were unaware that, we were told they went to the ocean, but we didn't know how, as kids, how, how they carried that out. Then we were told, we had a friend that would come up, it worked for my grandfather, and uh, he was a Bannock Indian, and he told us about Hawaii country in the desert, that there were salmon in the desert. Ah, that can't be salmon. <laughs> the Waihi River is one of the bigger producers of fish. Mm-hmm. We killed it off. Yet, there it was. And I saw pictures finally from friends of mine. They had these old pictures of these long rows of, of uh, curing fish in the sun and then smoking them. He said, that's for you to look at and that, to know that we did have salmon up here among our people. <laughs> then it's proceeded to tell us about the, the Malheur River, the Sun River, all mm-hmm. over that went further this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we stood by, that's what my cousin would tell me, we stood by and watched it and kill it. Until... I got a film, I didn't believe that, until I got a film given to me by a friend in Oregon Fish and Wildlife called the Oxbow Incident, the Oxbow Dam. They built those dams in the Hell's Canyon, purposely without ladders. Purposely. They can say, the guys are gone now that they built them. That was outright lie. There were thousands of fish that were coming up hitting that dam, hitting that dam. Little rivulets of water that was coming over the top. They were trying to go up high as they could and they fall back down. These are big, big Chinook, the last of their kind actually in that size. The Amnaha River, from the last place that you see those fish in that size. But all that, people had it within their within their ability, within their grasp, to save at least some of that. In heaping indignity upon those remaining fish species. The, uh, quote, rapid river fish that was so protected by the state that it was the run, preeminent run, as in, you know, listed, sensitive or endangered. 
And we said, well, we were told, why not? Because they originally came from the Powder River. The Powder River was dammed up when they built the last dam on the, on the, in Hell's Canyon. Mm-hmm. Yet they took remnants of those fish and they put them into Idaho and said, these are Idaho fish that are going to be rebuilt. We need to save them. You can't fish them. We're not the ones who dammed them off originally. But it was these types of things that, you know, that, that kind of went along with the storylines of how it used to be. How things were at one time. You know, and our, our fishery were one of the things we found in the University of Idaho. And it's still, still there. I presume it's still there hanging in nitrogen. Are some of those runs that are extinct now? All that remains are those in strings of nitrogen in a laboratory in the University of Idaho. <laughs> so, so, what do we do? We had to make a policy move to pull them out and to reinvigorate. But where is it we can put them where they're not going to have harm done to them somewhere else? We're faced with something that creation is there again. What do we do? What kind of people are we as a whole going to do once we take them out of nitrogen, put them back in again? It's like a science fiction movie. We're going to play with life. We create life. But we do that every year, huh, Jerry? Every year, every two years. Jerry and I have worked in fisheries, doing research work up in Lolo handling little bitty guys with tags. Sometimes the tags were half as big as the fish. <laughs> you get in there and handle, handle those. Wondering how much of these are going to come back. It's all based on what a machine counts, not what you see or what you deal with. And all the tribes that are successful have all done that. Some must say, what have we done to ourselves? But the successes are providing fish for our people, for the little ones, little ups, little tiny ones, so that they can have something. They can taste it, they can feel it, and they'll work. Maybe they'll preserve it. We go back to that same principle again. So we don't we don't believe that we're doing anything wrong. We're trying to recorrect them. Seeing the seasonal round as such. What got started with the fishery program was when one day we were sitting in my, my office and we were talking about it, we were ruminating over the problems. The old gentleman came in, yeah, raising hell, hollering, I want to see the boss. By God, I want to see him. How come we're not getting, where's my treaty rights, my fish? Where's my fish at? Elmer Paul came in, Whiskey Paul, old gentleman. And he sat down and there and said, I'm not going to leave until you tell me what you're going to do. My uh, production manager was there. So he said, "Does he? is he aware of what we're doing? Said, no. And sit down. So Elmer looks at him. Who is he? I tell him he's a fish doctor. Fish doctor? What's a fish doctor? Yeah, he's a biologist, fishy biologist. He works on restoring fish. Hmm. Okay, I mean, I'll tell you then my side. Oh. So, 
Ed, he gets his tape recorder out. He's always got the little pocket tape recorder. He gets it out. You put that away. Okay. Then he has his little flap notebook. You put that down. What I'm going to tell you, you keep in here and in here. Then you speak the truth. So anyway, he proceeds to take us through there half a day. He said, when he was a little guy, a toddler, he remembers going up the Clearwater, the Selway, on horseback. And horseback, you know, off the wagons, they went to horseback. Then they went up, and they proceeded to follow the Selway, which is the our Nesper Signature River. They went up into the wilderness, and into where Montana starts up there, they're back up in the Magruder. He went clear up there. He said every time they would go by a stream that had fish in it, well, they picked or dug a different type of root or berries. And they would be there and they would do whatever curing process they would use at that time. And um, he went that way. They go clear on up and they drop down another drainage. He said they, they talk about which way do the men folks go. The men folks are already in there. So they would catch up to them. And then from there, they would go through those rivers. And he was telling us of all the things they caught. And he was just losing me because some of those terms I hadn't heard in a long while or even been aware of that, how they prepared things. Finally, he said they came into the Hell's Canyon, Snake River. He said the snow started coming. He said, yeah. He said, uh, we're, I had to wear hide but beneath my coat to keep warm. Then we got dropped down. Went clear to Clarkston, Lewiston. And he said where it came together, then we caught all the fall fish coming in. Finally we said, okay, what family's gonna go to Nikiaway? What family's gonna go to Coeur d'Alene or Spokane? Who's gonna go to Camia or Vino? And he said, how many families were there? He said, about six or seven families. He named off their names, their tribal names. We, we don't even have a list of those tribal names of those families. We could probably dig them out and recreate them. But he just came off the top of his head. We weren't stopping him. He did that. For half a day, he went through listing all those activities, everything they did. By the time they got back, they had their, their pharmacy put together with all the medicine. They had all their foodstuffs that were in there to, to trade for. And I said, you didn't keep that? But said, oh, no, not all of it. No, we had to share. We traded for it. But whatever we gave. So we never just gave something and just turned away because other people would give you something in return for it. And that's how it went. And during the winter, when they would have their their ceremonies or their meetings, whatever it was that they would do. Then they would talk and recount the things that people had said and done. I told him, this, he said, you're, you're in your 80s now. This is back, I forgot when Elmer passed, but uh, he said, yeah, so we still hung on to that way of life back when it was well in the 20th century. And he said, now we've lost it all. I go to the store to get my medicine and my pills. I go here to buy this, buy that. 
the only way I can protect those things I can get are my treaty rights going to help me to do that? I think not. <laughs> That's the thing he told me, and that kind of stunned me the way he said that. My treaty rights are not going to sustain those things unless I do something to really show that it's necessary. So with that, you know, the he was proud that we were making an effort. But he said, you boys have a lot of work to do, long ways to go. So it's, um, to me, it's a life lesson the way he said that. That was former Nez Perce Tribal Chair Silas Whitman speaking at a Confluence Story Gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. To learn more about the Nez Perce people, go to nezperce.org. A special thanks to our host for the Lewiston Confluence Story Gathering, the Center for Arts and History at Lewis Clark State College. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or find us wherever you get your podcasts.